Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And I just kind of had this thought of like, okay, I'm going to be a dad who used to be a director and I work in a cubicle now and that's okay. And that's, that's all right because not everyone gets to do what they want to do and get paid for it. Sometimes you have to just like do what you have to do and you can do what you want to do as a hobby. And that's, I, I really do believe that that's okay. And about a week into that gig, <laughs> I got a, a call about going to, um, initially I was asked if I would come work three weeks at Kimmel as a director. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talked to writer, director, improviser and improv teacher, Jacob Reed. Hi, this is Steve Whiteley, comedian, actor, filmmaker and writer, all round ADHD creative. And welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts. And we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond. Balancing Acts is made in association with the Comedy Crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Jacob hails from San Diego. He has written and directed for Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, Funny or Die, Above Average, Jimmy Kimmel and the Emmy-nominated Night of Too Many Stars. Jacob is also an improv teacher at UCB and has performed in numerous improv groups. He co-hosted the Before You Were Funny podcast and currently lives in Los Angeles. This was a great conversation. We covered a load of ground, such as Jacob's life as a new dad uh, during a pandemic and how not having free time is keeping him focused how he's feeling after taking such a long break from performing improv and how he's dealt with always striving for the next goal in his career and trying now to be less goal-driven jacob explains why he's trying to move away from approaching his art and ideas from a strategic or analytical approach he breaks down how his improv experience has informed how he directs or works as a director and has helped him develop a more collaborative approach on set we talk about his improvised short film that recently got accepted into rain dance 
dance. The experiences of being a creative director at BuzzFeed and overseeing 18,000 pieces of content and how he tried to balance that with his own creative projects. Jacob explains the 50-50 formula when crewing up on new shoots. We talk about the challenge of being a creative, coming up with the concept for a video and then having to hand it over to a director to shoot. Jacob talks about why he regrets following people's expectations of what they perceive him to be in the entertainment industry and why not put yourself in a box. He talks about what it was like directing Jimmy Kimmel Live and how at that point just before he'd received the job offer he'd practically given up on having a career as a director and then he received this call and it changed everything. Jacob describes what it's like working in Hollywood, why he loves teaching improv and loads more. If you are an improviser and you're curious about the US uh, improv world, then this is a great episode for you, or if you are a writer, director. In fact, if you're doing lots of things, because Jacob has done a load of things, as you'll soon find out. I met Jacob, we talk about this in, in the conversation, but I met him because I was on the UCB 101 course about a year and a half ago in LA, and he was an amazingly inspiring teacher, and we, we stayed in touch. And so it was great to catch up with him and, and run through his whole creative journey and finding out how he finds a sense of balance in his life. And remember, if you like this episode or Balancing Acts, the series in general, please do rate and review it on Apple and subscribe, tell your friends, all that jazz and be much appreciated. So without further ado, over to Jacob Reed. Perfect. How is life as a, this is such a cliche question, how is life as a new father, Jacob? Uh, you know, what's interesting is I, I, I don't fully know uh, what, what of my experience is life as a new father and what of my experience is life as a father during a pandemic. Right, yes. Uh, which has yes. been interesting. I think my, my wife is experiencing that even more although I was not with the father part, but um, because I, I was, uh, I was working a job that I did not feel I had the security to take uh, very much time off of when our son was born. And so I took, uh, excuse me, I took two weeks, which is a lot here for a dad to take off, which is crazy that that's a lot because it's nothing. Um, and then I went right back to work. And so it wasn't a job with the craziest hours, which was really, it was a really wonderful job. Um, but I, I was not around as much the first six months. And then once the pandemic hit, you know, it's just been the three of us in our house. Uh, we're, we're experimenting with childcare for the first time next week because we finally, or I finally admitted that we just can't keep doing this. My wife was like, is more of a pragmatist than I am. And she, realized that a long time ago but i'm like no one's coming in or out without a hazmat suit like we gotta be right. so careful and and we don't want to have even if we had uh, a nanny or a babysitter wear a mask around him he can't wear a mask and he's going to take the mask down and it, yeah. it just so we have someone who uh we feel is has the same like exposure level as we do which is pretty minimal and we're gonna hope for the best and you know all three of us keep getting tested and all that but it's it's exhausting, I guess, is the answer to your question. <laughs> How yeah. is it to be a new dad? It's, uh, you know, the first chunk of time, you don't get any sleep, like everyone says. And then once, by the time you do start getting sleep, 
uh, that's around the time that the pandemic hit. So I still feel like, I just feel exhausted all the time. Yeah, I'm such an intense experience to become a new parent during this period of time. That's what I mean. So like when you ask me how I am, my experience is incomparable to that, you know? Well, but everyone, I feel like when I, yeah, when I talk to people without kids, there's always this like, you know, they can't imagine how, you know, exhausting it is what we're going through. And, and that's true. You, you know, as, as empathetic, empathetic or as worldly as anyone is, I, I've learned firsthand that you can't really understand what it is to be a parent until you are one as much as you can, you know, glean. But that doesn't mean everyone's not going through their own shit. I mean, on the other hand, like not having a free moment keeps me really focused on what's immediately in front of me. And I don't have as much time to spin out with existential angst as I am want to do, which is something like that's a, a benefit to having a small child that keeps you busy. That someone who doesn't have a small child is suffering through having to just have themselves and their time and that, you know, to think about, which is daunting. Yeah, yeah. They're just I'm I'm done uh, dealing with myself and my own neuroses. It's uh, it's exhausting. Have you done? Um, have you gone through? I, I feel like everyone I know who doesn't have kids yeah. went through a period in in their quarantine or shutdown or whatever you're calling it, where uh, you know, like I have I have several friends who started baking bread. Of course, that's the that's like the number one. Yeah, I have yeah. I have I have friends who have gone from having like normal human bodies to being like insanely ripped. Yeah. Uh, I have friends that have started sewing. Like, have you done any kind of hobby that you've picked up? Uh, I started at the beginning learning Italian and that has uh, fizzled out. I had an Italian coach. I went through loads of different Italian coaches as well. There's this like online website. I don't know it online website. I mean, it's obviously online. Uh, we have this website where you can, you more, can more websites should be offline. Yes, yes. Is my take. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Let's go to the analog. Let's go back. Let's make it retro. Uh, yeah. Real life community. Um, uh, so yeah, you can source. You can source tutors, and and you sort of just have these Skype sessions. And I would just trial one, uh, and I'd have one. I was like, no, didn't quite like, didn't quite like the style. And then I go into another. I went through about like seven or eight different uh, Italian tutors, and I know that was just something that was almost like a mission. It was like. I went, you know, went head first into it. It was almost like the mission was find the perfect teacher rather than learn Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one thing. Uh, exercise, to be honest, I was, I've always been quite into that. So I was doing a lot of that anyway. And then, yeah, the cooking thing, mm-hmm. lots of cooking. And I found that, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I find that very therapeutic. Oh, sure. Yeah, if there's, I mean, I find anything that I do that is... Um uninterrupted therapeutic at this point like i had, yeah, I had right. to go to the dentist which i was putting off for a long time like i i pushed my appointment so many times because i was like i want to go in there without a mask and have my mouth open and have whatever swirling around you know it just it just seemed which is where like our you know human being cognitive dissonance fucks us up because it seemed so uh scary or unsafe to me and then when i actually finally went in there i was like oh these people are in everyone's disgusting mouths all the time and more or less they've always been taking the precautions that we now are all taking in our regular lives but uh at one point my dentist asked me if i was like how i was doing and i was like 
I might fall asleep. Like I'm so like just lying down, even though it's like, yeah, it's painful. You're working in my mouth, whatever. Not having to like do any work or like take care of a baby right now. Or like, there's nothing I can do right now, except for just be here at this dentist. And that felt therapeutic. So my barometer for what feels therapeutic right now is. I mean, you know, I've always found it, I'm going to sound weird, but I've always found it relaxing going to the dentist. Really? For the hygienist bit. Mm Mm-hmm. I just sit back and, you know, they've got the TV screen above me and I'm watching the new. Oh, that's cool. I don't even, I don't, mine doesn't have a TV. Oh yeah. They've got a TV at the top and then I just, I just fall asleep. Do you think it's the chair? I, I feel like, like. <laughs> it's, it, Cause it's like, ther- it's like going to therapy in a way. Yeah. Except obviously you're not vocalizing what's going on in your head, but. I think that being in positions like, like uh, uh, for a while I, <laughs> I looked into, this is when I was younger and single but i looked into like could could you sleep on a massage table anytime i get on a massage table i pass out and like is is the answer to me not being able to sleep easily like what if i just slept on a massage table and they don't recommend it and i'm sure it would be uncomfortable long term but there's something about like yeah massage tables dentist chairs these positions that we're not used to being in and you know what? You, you might have just uncovered like a niche you know this this is where you're gonna earn your millions just like dentist chair inspired beds or, or think, massage table beds i think there's something to it i think there is as well yeah i mean massages are always although i had a very painful one last week very painful oh, no. painful in terms of like i think it's supposed to be if it's a good massage if it's a sports massage it's supposed to hurt afterwards but mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, don't, I don't like that feeling i don't like i don't like the pain I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's like the good, I feel like, you know, when it's happening, there's like the good pain and the, the bad pain. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you how, how has um, the pandemic affected your life in the improv world? Because you are, um, you know, you're a teacher at uh, UCB, mm-hmm. Upright Citizens Brigade. I always, by the way, I have mentioned that I've said that Upright Citizens Brigade quite a few different times in different episodes and i always stumble uh, upon it so I it's hard to say it, well, yeah clearly um but yeah you're 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 a teacher there and you, you perform in in different groups has has things sort of started to get back to normal and, and was this the longest period of time you've gone without being on stage uh i think so but you know what's weird is i i kind of in the year or two before the pandemic for a variety of different factors, partly, you know, wanting to start a family and all that kind of stuff. Um, and partly just career things. And I kind of scaled back my involvement with UCB more anyway. So by the time the pandemic hit, um, I was still doing, you know, a couple shows here and there or teaching every now and then I, I didn't, um, I didn't have a full-time class because of my schedule for a while. So it, it didn't feel that weird. But what has right. felt weird is it felt during that period of time, it felt like I was distancing myself from something that I had done a lot of before and that I felt like I was kind of uh, always wanting to check in with it and know what was going on and kind of felt like I was missing out. Right. And I th- I think that with the improv community, but also with a lot of, um, there's a lot of artistic and social communities that we put ourselves in um, that do wonderful things for us and for our creativity. 
but also have this like side effect of creating like a uh, almost like a terrarium or like a biodome of like what is possible. And you start to, at least I do, I start to compare what it is that I'm doing and what I want to be doing, what I think I should be doing to what other people in that community are doing, which is, again, can be a really great motivational tool because there are so many talented people in those communities. Um, but it also can be limiting in a way. And one thing that I, I've been kind of shocked by, excuse me, is that with UCB totally shutting down right now, um, and obviously I hope that all live theater happens <laughs> again safely mm. soon, and I hope that UCB weathers this, uh, like as a specific institution, weathers this, whatever this is, and, and reopens in a way that's better and more inclusive and smarter because they, they've done some business things that are not that smart. Um, but it is really nice to have a break from it and feel like, I can't do any of that right now. Mm. So even if I wanted to, I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it feels like I've been on, I've been on kind of an introspective journey since the pandemic began where I, I think many of us have, where I've started to take stock of like, what are the things that are actually that important to me? And when you, when I started doing UCB stuff, which was more than a decade ago, it was like, I gotta be on a Herald team. I gotta be on a Herald team, that would be so cool. I gotta be a teacher, that would be so cool. And when you get those things, and, and I, I feel like this is true about any artistic pursuit or, or pursuit of fame or anything like that, not that I've had any taste of that, but when you get to those things that you've always wanted and then it, it doesn't solve your inner balance or something, mm -hmm you you just want whatever the next thing is yeah yeah and it it kind of this period of shutdown has has made me think of like okay well when things do kind of pick back up again what do i want to do and do i want to keep chasing the things that i was chasing because that's what i was chasing and why do i want to chase those things and and i i don't know how much that is the pandemic and how much that is is being a, a parent and it really does center you in like the circle of life kind of thing where you're just like, wow, I've like, <laughs> sounds so stupid. It's like, I've reproduced. Now I am like, I have passed whatever genetics or ideas, or I mean, my son's only one, so I don't know about ideas, but like, I'm a part of this generational, whatever it is. And I'm not just me anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Was was there an answer in anything? That no, there was, there was. And and so many people that I've spoken to have been going through that same thing. Of kind Interesting. Of, because I think you have, in some ways, you have time. If you're a new dad, obviously, so you, you don't have that same luxury of time, but you're not, you're not moving from one thing to the next. You're not going mm -hmm. from improv to this job. And so, yeah, you have time to contemplate thinking, actually, what, what is it that I want? So did you come to, have you come to any conclusions? Um, I think so. Uh, and what's hard is that I haven't, um, I, I think of what I'm doing a lot of the times is like just op what, like open loops or like spinning plates or like I have, I, I, I'm the kind of person that takes a lot on and I get excited about a lot of different things. And 
I am either very good at time management or very bad at time management, depending on your perspective. Because I think I'm good at, at, at it in that I'm doing a lot of things and finding the time to do them all. But I'm bad at it because why, why would you say yes to that many things? You shouldn't. You shouldn't. Um, and I think that... I, I think, I guess I want to like caveat this, that I, I haven't had a chance yet to follow through on this. So I'm going to say, I think this is the direction I want to be going, but I, it's, it's just been a lot of thinking while I close out all of these other projects that are open so that I have the bandwidth to start in this new or modified direction. But um, I went to, I went to art school and I've always been really interested in and thought of myself more as a, a as an artist than as like a filmmaker. Okay. But I'm very interested in making films and comedy and you know sh short pieces, long pieces, whatever. But I think I've I've started realizing that I approach filmmaking more as um and when I say as an artist, that sounds so like frou-frou and like full of myself, but I just mean more more from like the the perspective of the art world than from the filmmaking world. Okay. And there's a lot of things I've done in my past that I kind of, um, like conceptual art pieces or just more like weird experimental stuff um, that I kind of dropped when I was like, if I'm going to be a director, people have to think of me as a director and I can really only talk about directing and blah, 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 blah. And I think I need to not give a shit about that. Right. And just like, the more I think about like just making the things that interest me, some of those things are film or entertainment projects, but a lot of them aren't. And I think thinking about, thinking about myself more as someone who makes um, visual and conceptual art, that sometimes those pieces are, film uh, removes a lot of limits that makes me feel a lot freer in my brain. That makes total that, sense. <laughs> um, it actually, are, you, are you sure it's not just like up my ass convolutedness? Nah, <laughs> this, is, like this is the place where you're allowed to express those, uh, those, those thoughts. But I, I can relate to that uh, in terms of well, I think you and I have had some similar parallels in terms of we both worked um, with BuzzFeed creating mm -hmm. content and, and kind of working on that branded content side of things. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, but maybe, you know, in some ways when you are immersed in that world, it can have an impact in terms of approaching things in a strategic way mm -hmm. um, and creating content or creating things. You, you, you still love the idea you're excited about it but there's a reason like why uh, i'm gonna create if i know if, if i create this short film and i do x y and z with it then i know i sort of can get to this next stage you know so like you're craving or not, you're grasping for that next thing right or it's it's about um uh quantifying or like assigning value to things like i'm gonna yes. do like if i have ideas when I think about, because I have ideas all the time that I don't follow through on, and when I decide what to follow through on, often it is more based on what I think is going to be successful based on a definition of, you know, someone else's 
or like I have three ideas for a film, which is, which is most likely to be widely viewed or which is most likely to get into right. festivals or which, yeah. instead of, which is a, a terrible way for a creative person to think. Uh, and what I would, would really like to be doing more of is like, here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to do. If yeah. no one ever gives a shit, great. Cause all of my favorite things that I've done are the things that no one ever gives a shit about right. <laughs> except for me until, until someone does. And then people are excited about it. And I'm like, Oh really? I, I didn't think anyone cared about that. And that's, yeah. and all of the things that I like as a, as a viewer or consumer are always the things that are the most personal from other people. So I don't know why, why I would think it'd be any different with me. Yeah. Well, yeah, I do think you can get caught. I say you, I say I'm talking and referring to myself. I can get caught up in my career plans. Um, and, and so that can sort of play into the think of it. And I think similarly to you, I'm just getting around now to the idea of just playing for the sake of playing. But I would imagine mm -hmm. with you, that does come quite naturally because of your improv background. Has, has that informed the way that you work as a director? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, from uh, like at the, at the very surface level of like even what kind of projects I'm excited about or, or, or how much, um, you know, how much time I like to spend with improv when I'm shooting, if there's, if there's time for it and, and I like to like structure a day so that there will be time for it, even if that means I'm getting, uh, or I'm being more efficient with my time somewhere else so that I have half an hour to play around with something. I'll yeah. always prioritize that because I think it gets the best performances, but also even in terms of like what I choose to do, like there, um, uh, I, in a, in a non-pandemic world would be heading to London soon because I have a short in rain dance this year that is purely, pure, purely improvised. So I, I had always, I have like so many projects that I, I want to do that are, that are, you know, take a premise. What I would love to do is just do a series of shorts where I take two wonderful uh, improv, improv comedians and actors and we pick a location that seems exciting and cool to us and we improvise a scene in there at the top of the day and we have, you know, a cinematographer and a team that, that I have a second hand with at least, if not the performers also, so that we can be flexible and we basically create a short in, in, in a day and no script, no anything. And so um, I did a version of that with this short gum because I had seen Susie and Becky, uh, uh, Becky Drysdale and Susie Barrett, who are the two performers in it. Um, I had seen them do a bit where one of them was pitching the other on chewing gum in a world where chewing gum didn't exist. It's, and it was almost like a pitch meeting, but, right. you know, trying to convince them that they should invest in chewing gum. Yeah. And so I was trying to think of like, what can I do as a trial balloon for this style of filmmaking where it's just one location, two improvisers. Um, and we improvise this entire short. So that, I mean, so that's a very like, specific example of improv shaping the way I direct. But yeah, I, I think just the way I am on set too, I, I, I have had jobs where producers have um, been concerned that I don't have a viewpoint or that I don't feel comfortable uh, asserting myself because I, I'm interested in what all the different department heads think. And I always come into something 
with here is what I want and here's what I imagine, but I'm, uh, I don't think anyone should be so full of themselves or their own ideas to think that their way is the only way. So I always ask everyone like, well, what, what are your ideas? And it doesn't mean that I am going to a hundred percent go with them, but I feel like that, uh, that collaborative spirit of improv, I just think we're all, we're all able to do a certain amount as artists, but if we all work together and everyone can bring ideas to the table in a fair way. And I still think the director is the, the, the funnel for those ideas, but I really believe in, in as much collaboration as possible. That's crazy that producers would take that perspective because it's, it's like, it's what you want in a way. You want your director to be collaborative and, and work with the other departments. For sure. But I think there's also a, I think there's like a macho thing about directing. And I think it's partially because the, historically the opportunities uh, for leadership in almost everything, but especially in the film world go to men. And I think that, I've been on sets or, or had, you know, been visiting friends who are on sets, not that I have nothing to do with where there are these hotshot directors. And I think there's something, uh, most of the time I kind of think they're blowhards. Like in times that I've been creative directing a project, cause I also come from the, the agency and, and, uh, advertising world, mm. uh, in times that I've been the creative director on something where we've hired a director the directors that I see people get excited about are the directors that are like, that they have a vision. And like the way, even the way we talk about directors is very uh, like this kind of dominant machismo thing. So I understand where it's coming from. And I think that something that I've been learning and, and, and trying to grow toward in my directing career is having the openness and collaboration that makes me feel that I'm getting the best product and is just the way I feel creative work should be done period while also I I think you have to be careful the way you talk about that kind of stuff because if the people who have money behind a project are just wanting to know that they feel like they're in good hands and there is a little bit of being collaborative that can sound wishy-washy and I'm 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 certain that it's not um it's not that they don't want people to collaborate but it's that they just want their director to have a vision and I think those can sound like different things to people. Yeah. And particularly if you're working on a a project in the advertising world, if you're directing a project in that, that world or the branded content world, um, the, not only the producer, but the client also wants to know they're in safe hands. Like it's a funny one because on that side of things, you, you got to take on board what the, what the client wants, but at the same time, you know, express your opinion on, why you think it should be done in a certain way because they're not they're not filmmakers well and and that's that's part of it is that there are so many people involved in making creative content especially in funding creative content that there are so many gatekeepers that do not have a creative bone in their body uh and they they just want to feel like they are doing cool shit and well taken care of and and it and that's why the people who sound like they know what they're talking about get the jobs yeah so t- talk to me about your the experience of, of being a creative director on, on on buzzfeed how first of all how did you balance that because that's an quite it's an all-consuming job how did you balance that with your 
your own creative projects outside of, of your work with BuzzFeed? Um, yeah. So when I was at BuzzFeed uh, specifically, and I've creative directed a, a handful of other places, but with BuzzFeed, it was a really interesting time because I joined BuzzFeed as higher 11 or 12 or 10 or somewhere in there for their wow. branded video department, not for the whole okay. company, but just for their branded video department. I had okay. gone, I didn't even know BuzzFeed did video when I interviewed with them. I think they were, they were just in the, in the kind of beginnings of their video world, which is what we think of them as so much now. Yeah. Um, but I went in for an interview about a, a comedy directing gig for a, uh, a venture that they ended up not even doing. Um, but during my interview, they were showing me their new building and they're like, here's where we're going to put the branded video team. And I followed up with them when they closed the comedy thing. And I was like, Hey, what's the deal with that branded video team? Cause I've done some branded video. Maybe I could talk to them. Um, mostly looking for directing gigs. I was not ever planning on working there. Uh, and then during my first, uh, year and a half, that department grew from being about a dozen people to being almost 200 people. And so there was a period of time, almost a year in like 2016, 2017, where there were five creative directors reporting to one ECD and the five of us were responsible for any video led branded content going through Buzzfeed globally. Um, most of it was through America and the stuff that was not through America, we were more consulting on, not like we didn't have to be fully in the weeds on, but it, it, throughout the course of a year, the five of us supervised, I mean, like something like 18,000 pieces of content, like, which isn't 18,000 campaigns, but it's it, it just a, a ton of stuff. You know, like there were 60 hour weeks were like very normal during that period of time because mm -hmm. it was just growing so fast. And so I, um, yeah, there were times where I didn't do anything creative outside of BuzzFeed because it just was so consuming. Yeah. But, but. Were you still working I, as a, as a teacher at UCB as well? Uh, I was, I was picking up like random classes, like if someone needed a sub or something, but I didn't have a full-time class. I just couldn't like it, yeah. it was, it was so, it was just so busy. Like the, yeah. the, the growth at BuzzFeed during that time. And it was, it was incredible because I got to have a creative hand in so many different things. And I, I got to creative direct and also ended up directing just because for budgetary reasons, I ended up directing them also. Um, some of the first ads that ever, uh, video ads that ever went up on Snapchat or some of the first, um, uh, like definitely the first ones that BuzzFeed did for YouTube or, um, or Twitter. But for Snapchat, it was some of the first video ads that Snapchat did, period. And mm -hmm. so we were like working with the Snapchat team to decide like what an ad, <laughs> what a video ad would be on Snapchat, which was right. uh, crazy because we would make something they would be like, oh, I don't know if we want to do like, I'm trying to think of a good example, but like, you know, uh, they would come back to us and they'd be like, we don't want the videos to look like their ads. And we'd be like, okay. And so then we would make some that looked more like native content. We'd be like, it feels weird if they're native content. Like they didn't have like, if, if you go to Snapchat now as an advertiser, they'll say, Hey, here are our brand guidelines. Here's what yeah. you should do. But none of that stuff existed. They were making it up as we were going back and forth with them. Right, right. Um, on, I think some of the first ones were for pot noodle actually, which no one knows what that is in the U S but, uh, anytime I tell any, uh, 
You guys didn't get pot noodle, did you? Yeah, so I did a bunch of pot noodle spots. Right. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really busy. And it, it was it was a weird time because I I any creative outlet that I found during that time was really through my work and it was luckily creative work. Right. But I, I So you felt fulfilled creatively? Uh, I think sometimes I did. I, I I've always had day jobs that are also in the creative field. And I, you know, it's a grass is always greener thing, but I, I think about friends who have worked as like temps or as servers at restaurants or yeah. jobs that are really unrelated to what they do. Um, and I, I don't know if it's better or not to be like, cause I would, I would be, I would be creatively exhausted when I got wow. home. Yeah. yeah. And so I wouldn't do my own stuff. Even, even, like if there was a slow week out of nowhere where projects get pushed or whatever, I wouldn't feel like, okay, cool. Now I have time to work on my own stuff. I would sometimes just be like, woof, like <laughs> I just want to like do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess, um, you, you must expanded your, your network dramatically during that period of time in terms of when you do work on your own projects, I'm sure you, you, you know, you know, you have your sort of crew and et cetera anyway, but that's sort of, takes it to a next level in terms of people you can go to and collaborate with um, through being at BuzzFeed for that period of time. Oh, definitely. I mean, one of the things I, I worked with a, a great producer who is a really good friend of mine now who also produces stuff with me um, named Francesca Deludis. And she, um, she had a philosophy that I just stole uh, with her permission, uh, which was just every time she worked on a shoot, cause she, she was producing so many shoots, you know, multiple shoots a week for Buzzfeed. She would do, um, half crew she had worked with before and half crew she hadn't. And that was just like her rule. Like she would always do that so that she's always That's meeting great. new people. And it was such a great, it just felt like such a great hack because then there's enough people on set that you feel comfortable and you've worked with them before and you have a shorthand, but you're also rotating in different people so that you meet, uh, different people to work with and yeah, people with different smart. backgrounds and experiences. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and I, some of the, some of my favorite things that I directed were when I was at Buzzfeed too, okay. because there was, I, there, there was a point speaking of being creatively exhausted. There was a point where I went to, uh, my boss who was, who was the ECD for our department. Um, this was kind of like a, a almost like a little agency within Buzzfeed and, I was like, hey, if I can't direct some of these videos, I think I might leave because I, it, I'm, it's just like such a burnout making sure all of this stuff happens. And a lot of the times too, working as a creative director, not always, but you might work on a campaign and you're the one who either comes up with or helps shape the idea. You go through all of the different rounds of feedback with the brand and with, um, you know, maybe their media agency or whoever else, all the different you know, corporate people and you shape something. Sometimes it's a, it's a tug of war to make something actually good. Mm. And then once it's all packaged and it's a cool creative idea and you have everything ready to go, then you hire a director who's going to execute it, which if you're not a director, cool, great. You want to find someone who, who, you know, does great work. But for me as a director, packaging up all of these things and then just giving them to someone else. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of the time I got to hire friends and people who I knew were really talented and it was really awesome to give them both the opportunity 
you know, for the exposure and for the creativity and also to help get them paid. But there were definitely, I mean, there's even like three or four very specific spots that I, I remember because of my schedule, even if I was allowed to direct them, there was just no way I could actually, you know, direct them. And so I brought in other people, but their ideas that were so close to my heart that it felt like, I felt like, you know, cooking a wonderful meal. I, I mean, I wonder if chefs feel this, I, I guess you make a, a wonderful meal and then you like send it out to someone's table instead of eating it. It, it kind of felt like that. Right. Yeah. That's a good analogy. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I can imagine that being the same if, you know, you're writing a script for a sitcom and then you pass it over to the director and it's, you're, you're passing over your baby to someone else to execute their vision on your mm -hmm. script. In an ideal world, you're going to collaborate on it, but mm -hmm. still, I can imagine be very challenging. Yeah. And, and there were some directors um, who, there was a guy, Michael Langan, who I worked with, who uh, we were both very, we are both very type A and would sometimes butt heads, but um, he's one of the most talented people I've ever met. And, and there were jobs that he, uh, he was on staff at BuzzFeed, but, but only as a director. Um, and there were projects that he directed that I had originally wanted direct, to direct, but hand, had to hand off to him for different reasons that he did something with that I never would have been able to do. And, mm -hmm. and not because, I was going to say not because of his vision, but absolutely because of his vision, because he has a different creative perspective than I am, than I do. And that, yeah, it's hard to make your peace with letting go of that kind of stuff. But also the, the final piece for some of those is work that I am so proud to have been a part of. And I don't think it would have been as good as it was if he wasn't the one who directed it. Mm. So I think it's, it's funny <laughs> you're talking about how much I love collaborating and then being like, but I really wanted to be the one directing. <laughs> it's all coming out now, <laughs> 30 minutes in. And talking of, of letting go, sort of slight change um, of topic, but kind of on the same, same area. I, I've seen you perform in your in one of your improv, improv groups and sort of like, man, like the, you guys out there are just an, are just another level in terms of just the skill set. I mean, there's some really good improv groups in London and you mm -hmm. know, the scene is really burgeoning, but it's not to the same extent as it is obviously in LA. And just, it, it was so amazing watching you. It's just like, oh man, just firing on all cylinders. As someone who's sort of been performing for years and years, was there sort of like a very, um, did you reach a point where you're like, oh, I don't want to act. I want to focus on the directing and writing mm. side of things because someone comes and watches you on stage like, oh, that dude's going to be, he's going to be like in films and TV, you know. <laughs> and I know you've acted as well before, you know, you've been in shows, et cetera, but did you reach like a crossroads or something or was there sort of a particular point where you just actually, I want to focus on this? Yeah, that's, that's very nice of you to say. Um, I, um, so I guess the first thing I want to say is that I, I view improv as acting, sure, but yeah. not for me. Like, I, I guess okay. Okay. when I, when I think of myself as a performer or not, I always think like I'm more of a behind the camera person. I'm not a performer because I don't really count improv, which is weird and silly and maybe I should, right. but I, I, I would do improv and would want to do improv and just chase that high of like the, it's like the purest creation and collaboration. If I never did acting or never did anything in the entertainment industry, like I, I just, I just want to do that as a form of 
you know, expression and therapy. And it's just something I, so, so I, I don't equate, um, being a great improviser on stage or being a performer with being a good actor or, or what am I trying to say? Not, not that you, you can be one, but not the other, but I don't, I think there are a lot of great improvisers who just love doing improv and don't feel like they have to follow that as a career path. Um, but that being said, I, I think I just saw, um, I think it was also a reaction to like what I think people's expectations are of me, which is something that I really have followed more than I think I should. And I wish I hadn't followed as much in my entire life and career, but it, it just started feeling like the people who I saw being successful at different things were people who a hundred percent of the time put themselves in the box that someone would think of them as, you know, like even if they're a writer and a director and actor, they tell people like, I'm a writer. Most of their thing is, is writing or right. most of their thing is, is acting. And I have always been this kind of like, you know, had interest in all of these different things, like jack of all trades kind of person. And it, I started feeling like I would be more successful as a director if I just told people I was a director. And if I removed like anything in my portfolio or whatever that was different things, and I, I don't think, or I don't know if that was the way to go. Uh, and I, I have had, I'm more successful as a director now than I was when I made that decision, but I'm also however many years into my life. And maybe that would have happened anyway. And maybe I would be more successful if people thought of me as a multi-hyphenate, you know, like n- now I'm at a point where people only think of me as a director and I'm like, but I want to do these other things too. Right. Yeah. So and, and and where other friends who I watched become, you know, famous for being actors or writers are having more opportunities to direct than I'm getting because of their fame as an actor or a writer. Right. So, but really, I mean, like the message I, I wish I could give to myself, whatever it was, five, six, seven years ago is like, just don't, don't put yourself in a box at all. Hmm. But you could, um, and I'm sure you, you would if you wanted to, you, you can always cast yourself if you want to open yeah. up that, that Pandora's box again. I, I totally could. I, I, and maybe I will. I, the, the people who I know who I've uh, acted with who are, act, like, who are real actors. Yeah. Um, I'm blown away by like that, like one of the only, like I've not done a ton of acting jobs, but I, I was in a, um, an independent film with a bunch of comedy people that I know slash knew at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, three guys that I went to college with uh, were in it from this uh, comedy group called Good Neighbor. And two of them, uh, Beck Bennett and Kyle Mooney are on SNL now. And so in the short, or in the in the film, sorry, it's a, it's a feature film. Um, I played like the protagonist, who's this kind of like nerdy, awkward guy, and Beck played the uh, foil for him, who is this like you know kind of meathead bully. And Beck is a phenomenal actor, uh, and and is like a trained MFA actor. And I, I think one of the defining moments for me being like, I'm not really an actor, 
was being on set with him and like my approach to scenes and his approach to scenes, which was like, he, he was like, a, you know, a student of acting. Like he did all of this work preparing for it that I, that it wasn't that I didn't want to prepare for it, but it just like, it was like going to read a book in a language that you didn't speak. Like I, I have some familiarity with it, but just like watching a true actor do that. And then much later being on set as a director, like seeing how different actors approach things. It's just not something that I have the like expertise in, I guess, which I, I mean, maybe, maybe that's also like, maybe you shouldn't only do things you have the expertise, the expertise yeah. in. I, I understand where you're coming from. Then, but then I sort of think about people like Ricky Gervais and he's sort of like, Sure, he's a, says, definitely he just, not an actor. He, he just says he plays himself, really. Not, not exactly himself, yeah. but, you know, it's sure. there are variations, not Derek, but, you know, in, in a lot of his shows, there's just varying degrees of Ricky Gervais. And well, he also has, works. he's incredibly talented, but he also has an, an ego that I do not have. Right, okay. Uh, and I think, yeah. I think that there's, I think that that's a part of acting. Maybe that's what it is, is I just don't have a thick enough skin to be to be an actor. I also love that this is this conversation has become you trying to talk me into uh, <laughs> pursuing more var- varied things, which which I would like to do, and I ne- I frankly need the encouragement to do. What I'm saying is, Jacob, I've written a script. I want you to play uh, the lead, and this was me sort of like reading you in. Great. You're, I mean, you're you're right about all of those things. I, I I should I shouldn't I shouldn't close myself off to them. Yeah, I mean, so you do what feels right at the time, don't you? Perfect. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. But back to the directing now. You last year you directed Jimmy Kimmel Live, which is a pretty pretty major gig. Mm-hmm. How was that experience? Oh, it was wonderful. And, and was it kind of like, oh shit, this is like when you got that when you got the call or whatever it was the the email? Were you like, how how did you react to that? So I um, I had kind of given up on directing as a career. Really? Uh, At that point? <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. And it wasn't that it wasn't like I wasn't going to keep directing things on my own, you know, shorts and, and maybe films and whatever, just for fun. But it's, it's really hard to, it's really hard to get gigs in the entertainment industry that are the gigs you want. And it, it all comes down to like knowing someone who knows someone and it, a lot of it is a crapshoot and, and a lot of it is talent, but I think talent is one of the smallest slices of the pie. Really? Uh, I think I really do. And uh-huh. I, I don't think it should be that way, but I think that I think, I think you have to have talent to be ah, maybe not even, I don't even know if you have to have talent, but, <laughs> but it certainly helps if you have talent, yeah. but it seems to help even more if you have confidence and connections and, um, like I'm fascinated by, do you know the, the Dunning-Kruger effect? It's yeah. this, I'm like fascinated by it. It's the idea that the, the top 10 to 20% of people in terms of talent uh, 
are that talented because they critique themselves and that critique of themselves tends to them um, or, or it tends to make them undersell themselves by 10 or 20%. And then the kind of secondary tier of people know that they're not as talented. And so they put more effort into selling themselves. And so what you basically get is the, the A level people selling themselves as like the B level people and the B level people selling themselves as like the A level people. And I think that the way that our entire industry and the way we talk about being creative, we really enable that in a way that has got to change. Mm. Um, and so I, uh, it had been a little while since I got a gig and I had been mostly working, um, I had mostly been working in advertising and directing things when they came up, but I was getting enough directing offers that I thought, okay, maybe I can leave advertising and just work as a director. And I did that for about a year and I had a lot of exciting gigs that almost happened, but didn't happen. And I had a lot of like cool gigs that happened, but mostly uh, was not getting the gigs that I was going out for. And we, my wife got pregnant and there was this kind of conversation where like I hadn't had a steady income for a year and we were about to have a baby. And both of us were kind of realizing like, you know, maybe it doesn't mean that I'm not going to work as a director, but maybe there's something that um, I can do in the meantime. And so I uh, got put in touch with someone who, excuse me, was uh, hiring uh, at a, um, a creative job, but not a, a like a kind of desk job mm -hmm. at a, uh, a TV network. And so I interviewed for it and got the job and I just, I went to work the first day and it was um, really cool, wonderful people, but it was like in a cubicle. And I just kind of had this thought of like, okay, I'm going to be a dad who used to be a director and I work in a cubicle now and that's okay. And that's, that's all right because not everyone gets to do what they want to do and get paid for it. Sometimes you have to just like do what you have to do and you can do what you want to do as a hobby. And that's, I, I really do believe that that's okay. And about a week into that gig, <laughs> I got a, a call about going to, um, initially I was asked if I would come work three weeks at Kimmel as a director. Uh, and I had just taken this very stable job and it, it meant all these things were like, I, I was going to join the director's guild, which is really cool but also meant that I wouldn't be able to go out for some of the directing gigs that I had been doing before because they were all non-union. And I, I had developed these relationships with production companies where they kind of knew me as like a go-to comedy director who, who wasn't union yet. Um, so there were a lot of reasons that like leaving this job would be a risk, but I got the call and I hung up and I like, I almost cried. I was so like, because I, I had totally given up on, on being paid to direct things. Not that I wouldn't direct things, but I would just, I just, this isn't what's going to happen for me. Um, and then those three weeks, uh, it, it was the coolest job. And, and, you know, nearly everyone over there is, is both delightful and wonderful and talented, like almost a hundred percent. Um, and they, they have such a creative environment where, you know, you're turning around most things the day of, like you get the script at, uh, you get the idea, not the script, you get the idea at 10 in the morning. And then uh, as you're coming up with, well, how will I direct this two sentence description of something? The writer is writing it. And then maybe around 1130, you have a script. And there are, I mean, the, the level of talent 
behind the camera there is incredible where you have a props department, makeup, wardrobe, everyone starts production design, everyone starts uh, executing on whatever your vision of this thing is. And maybe by, you know, around one o'clock, you have the script and you've cast it and you've built a set all within the last couple of hours. And then you shoot it for an hour or two and then you edit it you bring it up to Jimmy, he gives notes and then it, it is ready for the show that tapes at five. Like it's the, the turnaround is insane. Um, and yeah, I had a really great time there. I had the three weeks turned into, uh, you know, five weeks. And then it was like, what it was like, why don't you stay another three weeks? Why don't you stay another three weeks? And then all in all, I ended up there for, um, a little over eight months. And then I left maybe a month before the pandemic hit. And so what was, what's kind of been confusing or what's given me pause is right, you know, after you leave a job, you, you start looking for other jobs. And so I had a couple things lined up and then the pandemic hit. And so now I don't know. Uh, I feel like, okay, I definitely am someone who gets paid to direct things. That's cool. But what happens next? Because uh, all the momentum it felt like I had isn't there anymore. So, and what a roller coaster, right? It's just crazy that you had reached that point where you'd made peace with letting go mm -hmm. of it, and you're like, okay, fine, totally. this is it, that's fine. And then, sort of like the unit, it's like the universe is like, and we're not done with you yet. We are not done with you, Jacob. It it was a really, I mean, it was a really cool moment, and and the um the TV job was at uh, Freeform, which is a Disney company, and I um the people over there. I I joke with them um, sometimes that I've never felt more connected to or loyal to a place that I've worked for for less time because right. I only worked 10 days there. Um, but I also, uh, in those 10 days, I set up, um, I, I had been hired to kind of uh, launch their Instagram series. Like they were going to do a bunch of shows basically on Instagram. Um, and I, I did a, a chunk of the creative work of starting to shape what those might look like. Um, and then I, I, <laughs> I, I've never been more, uh, I don't even know what the word would be like. It's not embarrassed, but I just felt so awful telling the person that had like fought to hire me on day six of me working there is when I told them like, Hey, I have this opportunity that I have to go do. And so I helped them with like the search for finding my replacement and ended up um, being able to bring in about a dozen people that I knew that were all really, really talented and I think would have done wonderfully there. But a friend of mine, Nick, took over that job and has done just such incredible things. Like they have so many wonderful shows that um, both the ones that I started to develop that he took over and then also new ones that he and the, their team have developed. And they're really good and it's cool to watch I guess you didn't ask me about that, but I just feel no, compelled cool. to it's say like a, that it's that's like... It's a win-win. It's a win-win, isn't it, in that respect? It, it really felt like I was going to like totally dick them over, and it ended up being finding them someone who, who honestly was maybe even a better fit for the job than I was, right. and who they, they really love and have had a great relationship with. That's such a cool story. It's very inspiring. And um, you kind of touched upon it, but I wanted to ask you, what is it like in terms of... Uh, working in the heart of the entertainment industry in LA, there's, you know, being from the UK, traditionally, 
it's always been like my end goal is like get out you know get over to hollywood baby you know that's sort of how it's set up and i know you're already shaking your head like no no and we talked about this before talk to me about the realities of being a uh, entertainment professional or creative sorry working and trying to make it in in hollywood so going back to what we were talking about before about me thinking of myself more of uh someone who is like an i hate calling myself an artist feels like so uh strange and like up my own butt but uh thinking of myself more as like an art maker than my personality and the way i approach work is like oil and water with how things work in the entertainment industry and how things are rewarded in the entertainment industry and i have a i'm really bad at all of the things that you have to be good at to get work Right. Like I'm, I'm really bad at the networking. I'm really bad at talking myself up. Um, I'm really bad at acting like I'm hot shit. Like I'm, I'm very self-critical and openly self-critical about myself and my work to other people who have not asked me to be. Um, so I, I have a difficult time fitting in with and working within the entertainment industry. And if I continue to have success in that industry, I think it will either be because I get better at navigating those types of things, which I'm always trying to get better at. Uh, it will be because the industry changes in a fundamental way, which could happen, but I, I don't, I don't see it happening. Um, or it could just be like dumb luck or somehow me giving up on the industry and being like, I'm just going to make cool art that I'm into all of a sudden will make people think I'm hot shit because I don't want. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all, I, I just, I, I maintain, and even if, even if, you know, knock on what I continue to be or, or become more successful, I still just think that I'm not, uh, I don't feel like I fit into this industry ever. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like from my perspective, cause you know, I was on your course that you taught UCB 101. I just remember you like walking into the room and I was like, this dude is like, super charismatic it's like I, I talked about it with um, camilla who was also on the course because she came on the podcast very early on and we were talking about it and we were just like yeah, yeah, jacob he's just like he's he's awesome he's, he's and me yeah, as, as, as a brit you know sort of like yeah it's, it's it's interesting how perception how people are perceived differently mm-hmm. to how they might feel you know because well, yeah I was like, I'm like straight away. Like, Who is this guy? Like, I'm sure. Like, what? What's he in at the moment? All this kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Well, and I should say, I, I, I definitely, um, consciously project that version of myself as much as possible, both when I'm teaching and when I'm directing. Yeah. Um, be, for that reason, because people yeah. want to feel that they're in good hands. But I also feel that one, I, I, I love improv more than so many things that are not people in my life. Like I don't love it more than my wife or my child, but I really, truly have a deep love for improv. And I, I, you can tell, you can tell. I love teaching it. Yeah. I really, really, and especially teaching, um, teaching all levels is really fun, but 101 and 201 is maybe my favorite because then you have like the building blocks and it's still like the excitement of, of, of 101, which is, you know, the entry for people who are not familiar with UCB. It's like the entry level class, obviously it's a 101 class. And then 201 is like the next class after that. 
I really love teaching those levels because you get people who are still new to it and have this, um, like watching my son play with things. Like he, I have this thing you can kind of see behind me, but right below it, there's like a little thing with balls where you pop a ball in it and it just spins around and down the thing. And he was playing with it for so long a couple of days ago and just like the the unbridled joy on his face of like this is amazing like he would keep coming over to me and be like dada dada and he'd be like i know i know it's really cool that's kind of what it feels like to teach people improv for the first time like you get to see them discover this thing that brings them so much joy and it's infectious and so i think i was probably like that you know teaching those classes because i i feel that way but also because i really believe that when you're when you're teaching someone something um, or even just any leadership role at all, you have a responsibility to those people to mm. make them feel comfortable and to make them feel that they're in good hands. And so, uh, yeah, I think it would have been inappropriate for me to not project that level of confidence. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, you're being humble as well though. I think, yeah, you, it was a fantastic experience uh, Thank to you. be in your class and what you do outside i mean now obviously it's, it's it's tricky because of the pandemic and the fact that you've uh you know you've got a one-year-old but uh historically what have you done uh, outside of your your career to unwind and find a bit of peace of mind yeah um not enough i'm kind of a workaholic in a way that i'm i'm really wanting to change and be better at. Um, I love going hiking and camping and going on road trips, which is something I, I haven't done much of in a while because of the baby and because of the pandemic. I love playing video games. Uh, I really love building things. Uh, so whether that's like, uh, you know, excuse me, even something as simple as like this, it's called a pickler behind us. It came in, you know, all these parts. And I was like, all right, it's like, this is a daddy job, which is, a, <laughs> as I say that out loud, a very weird thing to say outside of the context of, uh, I've just been sheltering at, in place with my wife and my son. And so there are things, like you ever watch Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Yeah. Uh, so there's like Charlie jobs, which are kind of like the shit work, but, but Charlie likes doing them. So, you know, we call those daddy jobs and a lot of the daddy jobs <laughs> are putting something together. And so whether it's something like that or, you know, thousand piece puzzle or a huge lego set or like i love uh tinkering and kind of building that stuff um and uh i think i really where i feel the most happy the most happy because that's the thing I, I started thinking about a lot when i was like maybe going to give up on uh being a director as a career and there have been other times like you were talking about buzzfeed and you were asking like was that you know what was that like and there were times you know, just speaking honestly at BuzzFeed where it was like the coolest job ever. Mm. But there were also times that it was soul crushing. Mm -hmm. And one of the times that it was soul crushing, I started thinking about like, well, when have I been the happiest in my life? And one of the things I thought of was playing with Legos. And so I bought a, um, a Lego set that was like nondescript. Like it's not to build something specific. It's just a bunch of different, you know, uh, standard blocks, uh, bricks. They're called, I learned when I was directing something for Lego. They are not called blocks. They're not called Legos, plural. They're called Lego bricks. Um, but I bought a thing of Lego bricks. And during my lunch break, uh, I would take a you know 45-minute lunch break every day. 
and I would just build something. If I didn't have time to go somewhere, I'd build something at my desk and I would use the same set to make as many different types of things as I could think of. And I, I started an Instagram called Lego Lunch Break. And every day I would just post a different, you know, something that I had made. And I, it, so, so going back and like building something with my hands, whenever I think about when am I the happiest, it's, um, it's doing home improvement stuff. It's gardening. It's, uh, when I was in college doing like sculpting or like metal work or like building something with my hands. And there's so much research that, that shows that that makes our brains feel better. And, uh, I need to do more of it. We all should do. That's great, man. I love it. I can just, just picture you just building, building Lego at your desk and your, Oh, I'm your, like, your colleagues. That's where I am right now. Like I, we just we just redid our garage, and I'm I'll show you. Uh, this is uh, when we were redoing our garage. I was like, um, okay, I'm gonna make my area basically a workbench with like pegboard and all my tools, and be able to start making stuff. I have a I have a project be- behind me that's um, we have like a fuse box back there, and so I'm yeah. gonna use um, pieces. Basically, what a, what a drawer uses to uh, slide out when you have a drawer, I'm going to put them sideways on the wall so that we can have a framed photo blocking the, um, the circuit board. And then when we need to access it, it just like slides away, like in a cartoon, like, uh, you know, a safe or something behind it. I love that. What was your colleagues reactions to you building Lego at your desk? Uh, it was fun. People would, um, people would make requests. So I would, I would take requests. People would, this one guy who was a, just a dick who I've, Speaking of like, yeah, just how we re- reward machismo. He's this guy who like has failed up at multiple companies, gone from company to company. He's never there more than a year and a half. And he's had like, you know, I'm going to stop myself there because I don't want to say anything too disparaging about someone else, even though I'm not saying who they are. But he would come to my desk and we were not even, we barely knew each other. He would come and just start playing with the Legos and like take apart things that I had made oh. and build other things. Which I, I like, I couldn't wrap my head around someone being that uh, inconsiderate, but what a douche, right? What a douche. It was so, yeah. Um, but otherwise, people would always like, you know, people who knew that it was happening would be like, oh, what are you building today? Or like, want to come play with them? And I mean, if I ever ran an agency or something, I feel like every desk would have like Play Doh or Legos or something on them because it unlocks your brain to, to start playing with something. Yeah, yeah, you're getting me inspired now. I need to start. I don't do enough of that. Oh, you should. They're fun. Yeah, I really should. Um, do you have any, are there any sort of uh, books that stand out to you over the course of time that have had a big impact on you or have inspired you in, in any way? Um, I, yes. Uh, so I read a lot of like nonfiction I read a lot of fiction too. I, re- I read a lot of like nonfiction kind of self-helpy books. Um, I would say one that's made a, a huge change in me over the last year is there's a book called um, The Courage to Be Disliked, which is a book about um, Adlerian philosophy or psychology. So I didn't know this before the book, but there's like Freud and Jung and the other like big thinker of of psychology in the 20th century is this guy Adler. And uh, it's just all about how we do so many different things to try to get other people's approval. And I Mm. feel like I'm 
guilty of that a lot. And so it really changed my thinking in, in terms of defining things based on what is my, I forget what they call it in the book, but like what is, what is my task, I think they call it, and what is your task? And so like in this conversation, I, or conversations like this, I'd be like, really like, am I giving you what you need? Or are you liking having this conversation with me? Or I'd be, I'd be thinking about all these things. And I still do to an extent, but his philosophy was kind of like, that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to do your thing. And, you know, if it hurts someone else, that becomes your responsibility. But right. just not worrying about that so much is, is completely reductive of me to boil it down to that. But that's basically what it is. Um, yeah. I would say that, that that's one that made a, a big impact on me. Okay. Also, and sorry. Go on. I just plug two more quick books. Of course. Um, because they're really short. One is uh, Your Art Will Save Your Life, which is uh, a really short read. It's uh, the first chunk of which is kind of a reaction to Trump getting elected because it was written uh, by someone who mentors artists right after the 2016 election. So it was kind of like how to still do art when you feel like your civil liberties are you know, under attack. Um, and then the other is uh, Jerry Saltz, who's the New York Times art critic, just wrote a book called How to Be an Artist. And it's delightful. It's, it's the kind of thing you could read in an hour, but you could also read slowly over the course of a year and just like uh, internalize every little bit of it. Um, it's great. Great. And um, similarly, uh, I'm currently reading this book, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Uh, <laughs> it's been on my nightstand for about a year. My wife uh, finished it and it's like, you have to read this book. And a, a friend of ours, um, Emma Gannon, is a writer in, in the UK. And um, it, she's written a book about creativity that Elizabeth Gilbert like, it, you know, endorsed or, or said was like, this is the book that I wanted to read or like something. Okay. And so Emma's book and, and this Elizabeth Gilbert book are on my nightstand. Do you like it? Yeah, it's good. Again, similarly, I didn't read it for a while because I just, that's one thing that I did do during lockdown. I binge bought loads of books mm -hmm. uh, on Amazon and, and then I just like have in the space of like a week or so, 20, 20 books delivered. And then you're overwhelmed, like, which, which one yep. do I start? So I've had this one for a while, but yeah, it is. I, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really. So everyone said, yeah. I'm really enjoying it. It's, it actually ties in a lot with what you were saying, actually, the permission to just create just because with no yeah. out, outcome or, or end yep. goal. And there's a book that uh, I think kind of redefined my outlook on creativity when I was probably one of the most creative periods of my life was in college and shortly after. And um, there's a book by the, the choreographer Twyla Tharp called The Creative Habit that is all about that also. And it's... Okay. I, you know, like none of that stuff is revolutionary, but I think there are some authors that tap into it and kind of can articulate it to us in a way that, that is really inspirational and we need to hear. Yeah, that she does, Elizabeth Gilbert manages to do that and conveys things in just the approach to different elements of, of creating something in a way that I hadn't thought about before. So it gives me a new perspective, even just talking about an, uh, catching an idea. Mm -hmm. and, and, then, and then letting it go. And maybe that idea wasn't necessarily meant for you or it was yep. meant for you for a specific period of time and then you yep. really 
So yeah, I almost feel like I've I've read it because uh, Heather, my wife, as she was reading it, like every couple chapters would like be like, you have to read this book because, and then tell me the so like are you, you're talking about or maybe not, but th- there was a um there's a story in that book about her wanting to write this whole thing about something that happened in Brazil, Brazil. or something, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, and then she gave all of her notes to another author because exactly. she decided it wasn't right. So yeah, yeah I feel. Like- <laughs> I should still read the book, but I've I've gotten so much you of it secondhand yeah, yeah, that I've got been, it. I've been inspired by it without even reading yeah, it. Yeah, and um, you a big fan of podcasts? I know you used to host a podcast yourself. Do you uh, have you got any favorites that you you've been listening to during lockdown? Um, you know, I, I've been listening less during lock during lockdown than I had before. But I will always plug. Um, I love Reply All, and one of my one of my favorite podcasts maybe like the two that I've been recommending to people the most are um, uh, there's one called Trump Inc. That's by ProPublica and WNYC. And it's uh, a sort of open investigation into President Trump's businesses. And it has been responsible for a lot of news that's come out over the last handful of months. And it's fascinating. And then one of the most interesting podcasts I've ever listened to that is like I, I like recommending because most people haven't heard of it is Gimlet had a podcast for only one season called uncivil. And it was okay. like the untold stories of the civil war and almost every episode of that podcast could be its own feature film. Like it's one wow. of the most interesting, you know, like there's, there's a whole episode about, uh, obviously we, we kind of peripherally know or not peripherally, like we know who Harriet Tubman is and she's famous for the underground railroad and all this, but, she led a um, spy ring to go uh, break into a plantation and get a bunch of enslaved people out of it. And it's like the, the story of that is like, how has this not been a movie so many times? It's, it's yeah, I w- Uncivil is one of the best podcasts I've listened to in a long time. Okay, great. Oh, I'll check that one out. I haven't heard that before. Fantastic. Okay, so I'm going to uh, wrap things up and I'll ask you a um, final question. I ask all guests on the podcast. What does the idea of balance mean to you or not? I, I think having balance, it means that you habitually create and carve out the time for the different needs in your life. Like if that's your, uh, your creative self and your career self, I think that's, that's a big thing in, um, that book, Your Art Will Save Your Life, about separating those two things. They're not the same. I think that's really important. And then your home life and your friendships. And it's, it, it, you know, like people use the analogy of like having a garden and you have to water all the different plants and they don't all need the same amount of water at the same amount of time, but you have to keep track of, you know, making sure they get the water and the sun and, you know, whatever that they need. And it's really hard to, to do that it's really easy to it's really easy to become 100% career focused or you know 100% family focused and I think of all the time like other people in my life who I've kind of come up with who have who are way ahead of me career-wise and I've had these incredible career opportunities but who are not you know who who want to be in relationships not that everyone needs to be but who want to be in relationships and aren't or who want to have families and don't. And I've chosen to put more time into that side of things than other people I know. And I hope it's 
given me a better balance <laughs> that I would have otherwise. I don't know. I think I think it's something you're always you're always chasing and striving for because you can't like you know like even when you think about like some something being balanced like if you're ever doing I don't know like you, you're talking about like a, a meditation retreat earlier and I'm thinking of like yoga or like when you stand on one of those boards at the gym where it's got like a little you know half ball under it right and you're kind of like do you know what I'm talking about I know exactly what you mean yeah for for like for core strength yeah um there's there's never like you just stand on it and you're done like yeah. you're always kind of compensating for different things so it's it's a you know it's a continual thing we keep trying to work on and then eventually we die it's a great philosophy which but is yeah it's bang on it's true <laughs> and hopefully we get close to it or or feel like we at least are in touch with it yeah yeah but it sounds to me from hearing you talk and describing the thought process of when you had sort of relinquished the idea of you you know becoming director that you have a very sort of good grasp on I think your your kind of own emotions and and sort of sense of well being, and you you don't seem to you don't you don't seem to hold too much importance to your career as much as you're passionate about it. It's not the be all and end all for you, and and as a result, it doesn't seem to um, affect your your ego as as much as it could do. Uh, I mean, it does, and I do obsess about it, but I I think I'm always trying to be less affected by what happens with your career and yeah. and uh one of the books i really enjoyed reading in the last couple of years was um amy poehler's uh like memoir autobiography yeah. thing and she she kind of talks about that and she also talks about your creativity and your career being two separate things mm -hmm. and that you're i'm paraphrasing it it might be from a different book but i, I think it's her book she talks about this about your um your career being like your shitty boyfriend. Oh yeah. And your yeah. and your right and your creativity being like your friends. Yeah. And and that's totally true. Like the career stuff, it's either gonna happen or it's not gonna happen. And even when I want to be successful career wise, I never imagine it as having a claim or notoriety or anything like that. The only thing I imagine it as is unlocking doors to be able to do the work that I want to do. Like if, if someone told me, hey, you will never be famous, no one will ever know your name, but I will make sure that you have the funding and the access to talent to do all the projects you want to do, I would take that in a second. That's the dream. Yeah, I would. Yeah. And, and honestly, that seems so much better to me than having any kind of notoriety or mm -hmm. having anyone know who you are. Yeah. yeah. Especially nowadays, I feel like our 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 anonymity is a, is a real privilege if, if we have it. And mm -hmm. it's, it's harder and harder to, to have anonymity on the internet, whether you're famous or you're just, you know, some person. Totally. All right. Well, look, um, yeah, man, th thank you so much. I was really looking forward to chatting with you because I knew, knew you'd have nuggets of gold and um, you did not disappoint. Where yeah, can, hope, yeah. where can people find out talking about anonymity where can people find out more about what you're up to creative wise? Um, yeah, I, I have a, I have a website that's just jacobreed.net 
with some of my directing work. Um, I'm building a website that has a lot of just kind of my everything I've done. That's like whether it's creative directing the rebrand of the Seinfeld Instagram or directing a sketch on Jimmy Kimmel or doing some kind of, you know, guerrilla art that I put up in LA or, you know, whatever, all kind of treated equally because I started feeling like that type of a portfolio sums up what I do a little more than just my directing portfolio. So that'll be up at some point. Um, and then I'm, I'm on Instagram. My Instagram is at typography nerd. Yeah, that's kind of it. Great. All right, Jacob, thanks so much, man. It's been great speaking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And there we have it, Jacob Reed in the building via Zoom. A great conversation, loads of takeaways there. And it's nice to have someone from across the pond on the uh, on the podcast. People still say that, across the pond? Where did that saying actually derive from? It's not pond, is it? It's sort of like loads and loads of sea, just huge amounts of water. It's not, it's not even, you know, if you said maybe across the lake, it's a little bit more closer to reality. But even then, it's a, it's a stretch, isn't it? It's across the sea. We're going to be pedantic. So I've got a, I've got a cold. I've got a cold. It could be described as the man flu. And, you know, annoyingly for us men is that we can't really, we can't really milk it for all it's worth because of, you know, COVID. You can't really go around trying to get people sympathy for having, you know, the man flu when there's people who've got COVID. Uh, I did, however, just to be on the safe side, I decided to have the COVID test yesterday. I have to say it was very efficient, very efficient. I will say that. So uh, I was quite impressed. I was in and out within 10 minutes and I will have the verdict uh, tomorrow. I'm sure it's going to be okay. And I'm just, just being dramatic and either, you know, I like a bit of drama in my life. What can I say? What am I watching at the moment? I'm watching, uh, well, funny you should ask. I've just started watching Seinfeld again, right from the beginning. And I find it very soothing. It's, it's, it's watch it and it feels like very innocent times. And, I, and it feels like at the moment we're in anything but innocent times. So it's quite a relaxing and joyful watch. So I recommend watching that again right from right from the beginning. And and Jerry's got he's got a banging selection of trainers. I've got to say, as as a trainer head myself, he's bossing the trainers. A lot of Nike Air flights there uh, on show. So well done to Jerry for his uh, trainer know-how. So on the theme of improv, we're gonna improvise all the way to the next episode featuring one of the key players in the UK improv scene, none other than the founder of Hoopla, Steve Rowe. I've been wanting to chat with Steve for a while, so it was great that we both found the time uh, to have a long and detailed chat on his journey. So that will be out in the next episode. So again, for all the improv heads out there, you're going to want to listen to this. Not even improv heads, those that are interested in, in starting or are starting running their own creative business. Steve gives loads of tips, but more on that on the next episode. Until then, see you later. Balancing Acts is made in association with the Comedy Crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.